You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to The Worship Review. This is a podcast where we examine Christian worship music And ultimately, we aim to offer a recommendation to pastors, worship leaders, and laymen whether or not this song should be sung in congregational worship. My name is Tyler. I am a PhD student in German and linguistics, and I'm joined by my co-host, Colin. Hi, I'm Colin. I am a history professor at a research university in the Midwest and a former worship leader. Today we are taking a look at the 2013 super hit, Great Are You, Lord? And you say super hit with <laughs> no sense of, well, I mean, no sense of irony. This no was... Judgment. This is a huge th- song, and almost 10 years later, it's still being played on the radio. are trying to ask what or who this song is about, what happens in the song, and we're asking questions of its clarity. So to get started here, Colin, who or what is this song about? Well, it is definitely a song about God. There's a little bit in here about the person's response to God as well. But for the most part, this is a song which I think in at least the style of the Psalms, praises God for something, and then responds. So there's a chorus which is talking about the things that God has done, and then says, we pour out our praise, and then says something else about God, and then we pour out our praise. And then the verses talk about, again, some ideas about about what it is that, that God has done. So I'd say on the whole, this is a song about and for God. You mentioned God doing some things in this uh, song and also the uh, worshiper doing some things in response. So what do you see God doing in this song? Yeah, God is doing several things. Some of them echo, or at least uh, I'll use the word allude to things that God does in Scripture. So, we see like creative. In fact, many of the things that God does in this song, which are praiseworthy in the context of the song, are creative things. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the dark. So, God gives life. He brings light to the darkness. He breathes into our lungs. You have to, I think, know a little bit about the creation story to really grasp what those illusions are. They're, I mean, these are true illusions in that they they reference something in a kind of indirect or implied way. But you could you could you could kind of get at the biblical anchor for these actions from the words that are are being shared and the actions that are being taken by God. So God, for example, 
breathing into our lungs. This is a kind of code. It's a way to reference the creation account, to make the song feel like it's responding to something very specific without actually getting into the real meaning of the creation account. And, and so that's why I, why I use the term elusive. I'm not saying, I guess, that they have to do a whole discussion of the significance of creation. But if I think about the setting of this song and why this song is so popular, of course, it's one of the reasons it's so popular is because it can be sung in many different sorts of churches. It doesn't have a lot of specificity. It has enough language that references the Bible, or at least certain stories in the Bible, but without getting too too specific. And so, a believer could sing this song, a person who knows their Bible in and out, a person who's a new believer could sing this song, but also, I actually think a non-believer is not going to be offended by the song either. There are some aspects of creation that should offend a non-believer. And this song glosses over a lot of that, about differences in male and female, about the original sin. Uh, there, are, there, are some, there are some troubling things in the creation account that would give that story its power and meaning, especially in terms of the greater story of redemption. So in some ways it might obfuscate God's separation of light from the darkness to say you bring light to the darkness. Hmm. Uh, it's not clear there what the darkness is. When I sing these words, I think of the darkness that is in me, that God has shown light into and redeemed through Christ. Mm -hmm. You may also see the darkness in the world that is being redeemed in Christ through conversion. But you may also erroneously just think of it as a vague image yeah. of light beaming into darkness. Yeah. What did you see in there as far as actions? I saw the worshiper responding to God's life-giving and life-sustaining power by, quote-unquote, pouring out yeah. praise. Um, Which is, that's kind of a cliche, the idea of pouring out. Yes. it. I, I was very curious about this figurative use of pouring out praise. Uh, it turns out that use to use pour out in the context, in a figurative context of offering up or just generally pouring forth isn't a new phenomenon in the English language. It dates back very early. I looked at the OED, the earliest uh, forms of this. Explain to listeners what the OED is. The OED is the Oxford English Dictionary, and it is the foremost authority on the individual meanings of words in the English language, but also on form, on style, and on etymology, which is what I'm talking about here. And again, just tell people what etymology is. Yes. <laughs> etymology looks not just at the meanings of words, but the origins of words and their meanings, and I use that word in the plural, throughout history. Why does that matter? Um, the point I was trying to make is that pour out was used even when it was presumably borrowed from French, according to the OED, um, purer, to pour mm -hmm. or to mix. So this isn't 
as much as you might want to fault them for this cliche, and, and it is a little bit of a cliche, I agree, in modern worship yeah. music, it's not a it's not a new thing. Yeah. Um, it's it's certainly biblical. We have examples of God pouring out his spirit on mm-hmm. people. Um, but it, it's also it's also very old construction in the English language. We see in the Old Testament poured offerings, drink offerings in particular, what some would also call libations. So if you're at your bonfire with your buddies, you pour out a little, the first bit of your PBR, right? <laughs> in some way, as some kind <laughs> yeah. of offering for the good of the night or whatever, right? Or fallen comrades. Yes. You pour one out for your, exactly. for your buddy. So we do see pour out language in the Old Testament. And it, you're right. We also see God acting to pour out his spirit in some cases, uh, he pours out wrath. He has a cup of wrath that is poured out as well. This concept of pouring out praise has a very old and varied and complex set of meanings and images, pictures that are attached to it. I don't know whether the authors of this song were aware of that. I will say, though, in modern music, it can be, it can be a cliche in that Because it is an old term, and it is a term that we think of as applying to sacrifices, or it's a phrase that gives a kind of antiquity. It makes the song feel like it's drawing upon something more solid. A forced archaism of sorts. Yeah, something like that. By leaving things a bit open-ended and vague, and just providing elusive references to Scripture— it can create problems in a congregational setting. Mm-hmm. You see it with the light and dark metaphor. And I also think there are some ways in which the elusive language in this song creates some doctrinal problems as well. For example, in the first verse. Unless you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Now, let's think about that for a second. It is true. We know this from the Psalms, like Psalm 34, 18, Psalm 51, 17, that God uh, saves those who are crushed in spirit and is near to the brokenhearted. We know that God does not despise a broken and contrite heart. But I don't think Scripture promises that God will restore every broken heart. It certainly does not. No. In fact, if anything, again, the pictures that we have of hell are where people are very sad. They're wailing. They're gnashing their teeth. They're in torment. They're, they're devastated over their rejection of God, of their sin. They're, they're utterly heartbroken. In fact, that would be one way to describe the state of the unbeliever in hell is perpetual brokenheartedness. Yeah. And Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You restore every heart that is broken. That is a that is an unloving thing to say to a non-believer. In Christ, we will have our hearts uh, healed. We will have our tears wiped away. We will have no more sadness and no more death. But outside of Christ, it's as you said, wailing, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. 
I'd like now that we're talking about some of the scriptural references to to recall specifically from Genesis two mm-hmm. the creation account of man because I think this is actually the crux of the song. So this is Genesis two verses five through seven. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." So here we see man as he is formed from the dust, being a physical being, but also having the breath of life breathed into him from God. And so man thus consists of both soul and body. Uh, We see this also in Job 33, where Elihu states that the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And... In verse 4 of Job 33, he also says, I too was formed out of a piece of clay. So at the heart of this song, I would argue, is the image of men and women made from the dust, having been breathed into with the breath of life, offering back their praises, right? That's the, mm-hmm. that's the chorus. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. At least that's how I understood it. It yeah. is actually vague. It's not clear whether they mean you have breathed the breath of life into us, so we pour out our praise. That's true of everyone. Mm-hmm. Or if this is every breath that we take is because Christ is sustaining mm-hmm. the order of the universe. That's also true of everyone. Or is it you have given us eternal life, so we offer up our praise to you. Now, that's something only a Christian can sing. I'm not sure which one is implied in this song. Believers will attach to those vague phrases or those elusive phrases real good meanings. The non-believer, I don't know what they're going to do with, it's your breath in our lungs. It's de- it's deliberately ambiguous, and it's it's clearly a metaphor, because we we can't take this literally. It's not literally god's breath in our lungs right now it's you know oxygen some nitrogen some carbon dioxide hopefully no carbon monoxide but (laughs) that's what's in our lungs right now so clearly we have to take this metaphorically but where we go with that metaphor it's not clear yeah So the bridge says, all the earth will shout your praise, our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Again, I was trying to think of, is that alluding to something? The only thing I could think of is the very famous dry bones passage in Ezekiel, I think it's 37. 37. Uh, And maybe that is what's being alluded to. And the only thing I could think of is, okay, so the Christian maybe is going to imagine the valley of dry bones. What is a non-believer 
going to see that uh, the idea of these old bones and and some, feeling something in our bones and the idea of bones being like the innermost part of our body. So maybe it's that the not you know it, it gives the song a kind of age almost. Again, it, and, and if we think about, and maybe you have something to say about this, but if we think about when this song was written and what was kind of hip at the time, the church was moving away, beginning to move away from New Calvinism in the kind of Baptist New Calvinism and more towards the kind of liturgical New Calvinism because there was a desire, particularly among millennials who at this time were anywhere between, you know, mostly in their 20s or at most early 30s, and they were looking for authenticity, and they were looking for... Trademark and copyright. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were looking for... They were they were rejecting the free-flowing evangelicalism of the 80s and 90s, but they were still evangelicals. So, you saw churches that didn't have liturgies, or at least didn't have like high church liturgies, adopting elements of that, like a benediction or a call to worship or just like little liturgical elements. And I just wonder, this song seems to have been, again, whether it's on purpose or it just got lucky, this song, in my view, captures some of the oldness and authenticity that was maybe being sought out at the time. Mm. I don't know if you have thoughts about that. This line struck me as well as I was reading through the bridge, and I also went to Ezekiel 37, and I remembered the Valley of the Dry Bones and thought, well, did they do any singing in the Valley of Dry Bones? No, they're resurrected. Yeah. That's what's amazing. But they, they don't sing. And so I think we have to take it in a, in a metaphorical sense with the previous line, our hearts will cry. I, I want to give the authors of the song the benefit of the doubt, and so I think the generous reading of this bridge is uh, in our glorified bodies, after being resurrected, we will sing and cry out to the Lord, and we will be uh, singing this same refrain, great are you, Lord, great are you, Lord. Shall we then discuss some concluding uh, factors? Um, what do you have to say in conclusion, Colin? Well, the big question is, of course, whether this should be sung in the congregation, since we've talked about its comparison with Scripture. I do object quite strongly to the, you will heal every heart that is broken. So I don't, that's not as egregious as one of the lines in one of the songs that we did before, which was, you couldn't imagine heaven without us. I don't think that is, that line is, this line in this song is not at the level of that line. At the same time, there's not there's there are some things to grab onto in this song that are coded or elusive, and I am really on the fence as to whether I would actually sing this in a congregation. I actually had a worship leader a few years ago ask me whether I thought he should do this song in his congregation, and in that church at that time, I said. You could probably do this song. You've been doing Amazing Grace on the Didgeridoo for 10 weeks now. <laughs> it's time for a change. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if I were the worship pastor and this someone recommended this song, I think I would lean away from doing it. I think just because of its vagueness, because of that one line, 
I think it's probably a great song to listen to if you can fill in the blanks. If you make the connections, it's fine. Um, one thing I like about this song is that it acknowledges the congregation in praising yes. the Lord. It is not merely a subjective experience. It's a communal one. I would not fault this song as much for what it contains as for what it lacks. And unfortunately, it lacks a clear description or even a clear reference to the Savior and his work and how it is true that these resurrected bones will uh, sing praises to the Lord. That's not mentioned. The cross is left out. Um, his atoning sacrifice is left out. And the mechanism by which God brings light into our darkness and gives us hope and demonstrates his love is absent, and that is regrettable. Um, I think it's also interesting to note that in the music video, which is not typically what we judge songs on, mm -hmm. but in the music video, the band platform is set up in this clearly older church, mm -hmm. um, right where the altar would be in a Lutheran church or an Anglican church, right where the pulpit would be in a Presbyterian or a Baptist church, and the crowds are gathered around the band right in the center mm. of this church. Um, you can draw implications from that. I think it is, I think it is telling. I do, however, think that in a congregation that can make these connections or where the connections are made explicit before you sing it, that this could be sung congregationally. You bring up something that is probably just a good piece of advice that I know I picked up along the way, which is that worship leaders can and should explain songs. There's nothing that's got, you know, if you're just relying on the mystical experience of these smooth transitions between songs and musical interludes and that sort of thing, you're missing an opportunity to actually stop the congregation and say, hey, let's talk about what we're about to sing. Because you want the congregation to be responding to the objective truth in the song, to the scripture in the song. So with a song like this, if you are going to do it, you should. You should make those connections for the congregation. At least the ambiguous ones. You don't want yeah. to insult their intelligence. Sure. But you want to avoid ambiguity, absolutely. Yeah. What did you uh, rank the song? I gave this song three sons and daughters out of five. Mine is, a, is two out of five tubes of Crest Whitening toothpaste. I'm trying so hard to figure out. Do they have white so teeth in the music white video? teeth, yeah. Just beautiful Wait. teeth. I, I think I noticed the teeth, and I yeah. thought someone has spent a lot of money at the dentist. Yeah. Wow. So, an average of two and a half. Yeah. This one, it sounds like, if we average them, we're very ambivalent about. Um, and I think ambivalence is probably a negative sign more than a positive <laughs> one in worship songs. Probably. there. If, you're, if it's, there's ambivalence there, there are probably better songs to do. And I can say, definitely, if you want to praise the Lord for what he has done in creating you and redeeming you and giving you new life, there are better songs. For sure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Worship Review. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.